Hey, loyal listeners. I'm excited for you to hear this episode, but first, a little bit of housekeeping. I'm starting to offer anxiety coaching sessions for those of you feeling a bit bewildered by all the tools mentioned on the show. So, if you have a question and would like a little bit of personal help, perhaps I can point you in a helpful direction. To find more info, check out anxietybookclub.com slash anxiety coaching or send me an email at joshuamolina at gmail.com. Thanks. Hello, and welcome back to the Anxiety Book Club. This is episode number 44, and I'm very glad to be joined this month by John Astin. He's the author of four books, including this month's This Extraordinary Moment, Discovering the Miracle of What Is. He's also a singer, songwriter, recording artist, and adjunct professor of clinical and counseling psychology. So thank you so much, John, for coming on the podcast. Uh, Happy to be here, Josh. Thanks. So I found you through, and I'm, and maybe many people have found you through the Waking Up app, the Sam Harris collaboration, where I've really enjoyed uh, your glimpse or or otherwise short meditations. Is that where you have gotten a lot of traction, or or where where do most people find you these days? I definitely, because um, I interviewed with Sam back in the summer, maybe July. I can't remember exactly, um, and certainly, you know, with with the Sam and his apps, you know, pretty extensive reach. Um, my work has certainly been reaching more people since then, which has been lovely because um, it's a, yeah, it's a great joy to, to share what I do with other people. But I've been, you know, writing and teaching about these matters for, for many years. But, uh, but certainly um, that particular interview has reached a lot of people, it would seem. And, and the meditations as well that are up on his app now that I've done uh, several series now uh, for the waking up app, which has been fun. Oh, right. Yeah. I was mostly referring to those. I actually haven't listened to the interview. I'll have to go back. I was oh, okay, cool. thinking yeah. about the meditation series, which are great. Nice. Yeah. 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 I had a great discussion with, with Sam as well. I don't know. We talked for close to three hours. Oh, wow. So it was, uh, yeah, he's, he was, he was a great pleasure to, to, to be interviewed by. It was a lot of fun. Well, hopefully I'll uh, also offer you some pleasure this hour. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> um, yeah. So there's many places where we could start, but maybe we'll just get a little more background. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I know what this book is about. And um, I also know that you're a professor of psychology mm-hmm. and I, I kind of wonder, because I, I, I know that maybe mindfulness or meditation is part of some academic programs, but I would imagine there's also a lot of stuff that has nothing to do with it. Mm -hmm. Um, Is there another part of your life where you're talking about more traditional, like clinical interventions or acronyms that, that help people? Well, actually I'm, um, I have a a PhD in psychology and health psychology. And um, I never, I thought I was going to go the route of, being a clinician being a therapist and um, it's a long, longer story, but I never ended up going that route. So I never became a licensed clinician. Um, and the way it sort of unfolded post that degree was I became a researcher and, um, for quite a few years with most of my research emphasis being on looking at sort of mind body relationships, studying in particular 
different kind of meditation approaches and their applications in healthcare and including mental health care. Um, and, and it was, I mean, early, earlier on in that time of my work, my, I was kind of known as a, you know, one of the, one of the earlier mindfulness researchers I did in my doctoral program, I did the first randomized controlled trial of John Kabat-Zinn's program back then. And so that was kind of my orientation. And then a lot of things shifted for me in the early 2000s when I, um, just through a series of um, occurrences, kind of world flipped upside down in its head and kind of coming to see that what I'd been searching for so ardently through meditation practice, as I'd been doing it at least, um, I, I came to see was was actually already present and I'd been imagining that it wasn't, which is why I was searching for it so so uh, so strenuously, I might might say. And, um, and I knew in those moments when, when that kind of understanding dawned on me it was around 2001, that, that I was never going to be able to approach meditation in quite the same way. And so I continued to do research. Um, I was in a research setting in San Francisco and I was still talking about mindfulness, but I started to introduce it in a more, um, what I sometimes would call natural or effortless mindfulness at the time. And again, you know, doing a number of different research studies, looking at that. And, and, uh, and as after quite a few years and then some really big grants, not getting funded, I ended up shifting my work directions and began teaching, uh, and started teaching about nine years ago now at two different, uh, master's programs in the Bay area here where I live. Um, and these programs are training master's levels, clinical psych counseling psychologists. Um, and then in, so in those programs, I'm teaching a number of different classes and, uh, I will introduce my work in the context of this kind of interface that has now been happening now for quite some time, um, between mindfulness and psychology and potential value of, of, of awareness practices like mindfulness for psychologists in their work, both for themselves and their clients. But then I kind of start to <laughs> um, introduce sort of my approach, which is quite a bit different than I would say that conventional, more conventional approaches to, to mindfulness. And I mm -hmm. start, and I really, um, even the last book of mine that you mentioned, This Extraordinary Moment, uh, I, in a couple of classes that I teach, a positive psychology mindfulness class and a class on stress management that are um, part of the programs where I teach, uh, my students are actually reading that book. And we're talking about it in the context of working with people in, in, a, in a psychology you know, capacity. But I'm really not, really, in, in those classes, not talk, talking a lot about more classical kind of psychological interventions and approaches. They're getting plenty of that in their other classes. So I'm really opening up this whole other window to them about um, another way of understanding human experience. that's quite a bit different from, you could say, sort of consensus reality understanding about experience based on how we typically conceive of it and, and language it, um, which I think uh, has 
as we, I'm sure, you know, we can talk about, um, has a lot of implications for, for psychology as a discipline. I at least feel that to be the case. Yeah. I like, I think this phrase might, will wind up being useful in our conversation, consensus, reality, understanding. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a strong, there, there is a strong consensus reality, (laughs) um, that, that is very much driven by language, I would say. Yeah. It's interesting because part of the book reads a little bit like, I don't know, either like a metaphysics text or maybe epistemology or, you know, we're talking about what is, what is right. Correct. Yeah. 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 It's really, it's really a book that is inviting the reader to explore what, what experience is. And it's, it's, it's funny to me because I mean, what could be since all of our life is experience, there isn't anything else, right? I mean, th- even if we think of an, a, a world that exists somehow outside of our experience, we only really know that world via experience. So experience is what we have to look at. It's what we have. It is our life. And yet it's pretty rare, almost non-existent in some ways, uh, for, for humans to ask this, I think, most basic question, which is, what is experience? And we, of course, have a lot of words um, that I would say lead us to believe quite compellingly that we understand experience because, again, we have we seem to be able to capture it enough so in language that we can communicate about it to one another. Um, I think we all recognize that there's aspects of experience that lie outside of the reach of language. Um, you know, and that'll come up in ordinary conversation, like, well, it's impossible to explain, you know, or it's just, you know, or you have an experience, it's just like, oh, my God, it was just like, you know, beyond words. And so that's very much not an uncommon human experience. But I don't think we completely appreciate how, well, really, the entirety of our experience really could be said to be beyond the reach of language. And so that's really the the heart and soul of, of my work is helping people to discover that what we think is happening experientially and the thoughts about experience again are are you know usually conveyed via language is not in fact equivalent to experience there's this term which you're probably familiar with and in, in, it's gaining traction in more conventional psychology driven very much by um approaches like acceptance commitment therapy in particular act as it's known and also the mindfulness-based interventions and the term is cognitive fusion and um that my book really is about that um i just would say i maybe taking it a little further than most people might take it but the basic idea of cognitive fusion is that we something's happening, let's call that experience. And then there's the way in which that, that which is happening experience is getting sort of rendered by consciousness, how consciousness is um, putting into some kind of frame of reference of understanding of what it is. We could say more colloquially speaking, it's what we think about experience. And fusion is basically the belief that reality or experience is equal to what we think it is. It's in a sense, we fused together our cognitions about what's happening with what's happening. We think it's, so I think I'm in a room right now having a conversation. That's a thought. Now I'm not suggesting that's not what's happening, 
but we we literally equate that thought with with, with the reality of the moment. So I, I would say yes, that's what's happening. I'm sitting in in my living room having a conversation with another human being. But those are concepts, and um, so so this idea of fusion is it's kind of the conceptualizations of experience are kind of smeared together such that we don't even realize that there may be a distinction between what's occurring experientially and then the, the conceptual overlay that's placed on that experience. And so diffusion, as it's talked about in, in ACT, except it's commitment therapy, uh, is discovering that our thoughts about experience are just that, their thoughts, their interpretations, they're not equal to experience. And um, that turns out to be an extraordinary thing to discover, extraordinarily liberating thing, I would say, to discover that what's happening here fundamentally transcends conceptualizing and language. And yeah, that's, that's the essence of diffusion and really the essence of what my work is about is, is helping people to discover the ways in which experience doesn't actually correspond to what we think it is. De deviate mm -hmm. from it in profound ways in fact yeah yeah let's talk about all this stuff some more mm -hmm. um so in the in the traditional or maybe the less investigative presentation of cognitive fusion mm -hmm. you might take an example of someone who is having a thought about the world or perhaps about a situation at work or a relationship and they might have a set of feelings and thoughts related to that event mm -hmm. that, you know, if they're in therapy are probably causing them some amount of pain or suffering. Mm -hmm. And and it could be the case that those thoughts and feelings, or let's just, just take thoughts because feelings don't have like a, a truth value, but mm -hmm. let's take thoughts. So it could be the case that those thoughts about, oh, my boss, he never emailed me back. He must think I'm, I'm horrible. He, I'm right. going to be fired soon. That's a thought. And it mm -hmm. might be true and it might be false. Mm -hmm. And if it's false, then there's less reason to worry. And it might definitely be false because it's just a thought. And so it, you know, it behooves our mental well-being to not be so tightly identified or fused with the thought. Mm -hmm. um, so introducing like a, a, a grain of, of skepticism there. I think, yeah, can free the, you know, inhabitant or the person experiencing these events mm -hmm. from taking so seriously the, like, fidelity or, or veracity or truth value of the thought. Right, right. And that's kind of yeah. even almost the basis of, you know, what's now considered by many people as sort of the most evidence-based kind of approach to psychology and psychotherapy, kind of cognitive behavioral therapy, where where pe people are, in, are are taught or guided to explore their ways that they're cognitively framing their experience and the ways in which um, those cognitive frames actually comport with reality or not, and how when they don't, uh, it can, as you said, can create a lot of internal unrest. You know, like you you don't do well as well as you would have liked on the exam, and then there's this thought you know, I'm a terrible person, I'm such a failure. And that kind of like, exaggerated, you know, sort of overgeneralized 
um, catastrophic kind of thinking, as the CBT folks would say, um, can be one can come to see that those are just interpretations and they're, they're not actually reality based. And when we think they're reality based, we can then essentially begin to, when we begin to believe those thoughts as somehow truths, then of course we can suffer the consequences of those beliefs, one might say. Um, so yes, so that, so, so this notion of diffusing from thought, um, has a lot of, you know, history in, in psychology over the last you know, several decades. Um, I'm taking it a, a, a little step further or a bigger step further in the sense that even our most basic, those are kind of like the, the those thoughts, like I failed the exam, therefore, uh, those interpretations, therefore, you know, I'm a terrible person, I'm a total failure, I'll never amount to anything. Um, those are like secondary, third level, fourth level kind of layers of interpretation that can often, you know, narratives that can often, as I say, create create suffering for us. Um, I'm, I'm even talking about the most basic kind of conceptual rendering of even, even the first step of labeling what the phenomena is, not, not what it might mean or what it might, might mean about me, which are kind of like secondary layers of, of interpretation. But even at the most basic level, like I said, that I'm sitting in a room right now, that's a, conceptual overlay as well, isn't it? There's not any additional like, like, I don't like this room, or this is a beautiful room, or when am I going to get out of this room? Those are again, are other layers of interpretation. But I'm talking about even the most basic idea of like, what's even happening at all right now, experientially, the, the basic phenomena that we encounter subjectively, uh, or what we imagine to be objective phenomena um, that, you know, you encounter uh, let's say a mental emotional state that that you label as fear. Um, again, we could have a lot of ideas about fear. It's like, why am I afraid again? You know, fear is dangerous. You know, I have to get rid of this feeling. Those, those are also part of the interpretation. But even the initial label, even the additional, the initial rendering of what's happening, appearing, you could say, experientially, that we then. Consciousness goes, oh, that's whatever, fill in the blank, whatever the label is that we call it. Um, I'm essentially starting really there and saying, okay, well, let's 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 look at that. Like what we call fear or insecurity or anger or anxiety or joy. I mean, any 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 experience, what we actually believe it is, let's take a look at that. Yeah. And see if see what's actually there. In other words, we could say all of those um, interpretations, those initial, uh, the initial labels that we give to phenomenal, experiential phenomena, let's consider those themselves interpretations. What is being interpreted? In other words, what's actually present experientially that, that the consciousness of the mind is calling whatever, fear, anxiety, worry, joy and so on what's actually present there and that turns out to be well ultimately not determinable we can't actually determine what's there and um, we can get into why why i'm suggesting that's the case but but that's a profound thing to even consider let alone discover experientially that at the most basic level we actually 
despite the power of language, which suggests that we do know what phenomena are, when we explore them experientially in the ways that I sort of guide people to do, we can discover that actually we can't actually determine what experience is. It's not resolvable. It's not mm -hmm. definable, in fact. And wow, that's an amazing thing to discover because again, as we were saying, we were saying earlier, consensus reality suggests quite the opposite. That in fact, we do know what things are and that this is the world we live in and the way, the world that we communicate to one another about and imagine we know what things are because we have names for them. But do we actually know what they are? That's the question because maybe we don't. Yeah. Maybe we can't know what they are. Yeah. It's interesting. It seems like the book has, I want, I'm not sure if both of the, it seems like it has at least two goals mm -hmm. or this viewpoint or like making this argument and putting it out into the world seems like it has perhaps two goals. And I can't tell if one is secondary to the other. The first one seems to be to invite people to realize like the poverty of our concepts and languages and their inability to describe experience at like a very fundamental level like mm -hmm. like literally like like the other night i was sitting on my meditation cushion and in preparation for this interview i've become a little more inquisitive <laughs> and i was experiencing anxiety and i asked myself like well what is actually here mm -hmm. like literally what is it made of mm -hmm. and well you know the punchline as you know you describe in your book and i want to ask you about this particular aspect as well well i don't know i can't say like literally i can't say because i don't know how to say like right. i don't have words to say if i did i would tell you but i can't <laughs> right <laughs> and, uh -huh. and so that's that's like point number one which you're making right now is that mm -hmm. when you look at it, hard is not the right word because this stuff's supposed to be effortless but when yeah, you exactly. look when you look deeply enough you find things that are really hard to relate to other people mm -hmm. well, uh, my, even to yourself and then but then there's a secondary effect which is i think the reason why we're talking today and and why this is a book about mental health is that there's a punchline there and mm -hmm. be, because you know the fabric of our experiences are unknowable in at least the way we know other things which is by you know categorizing them and describing them mm -hmm. there's some um there's some effect there Mm -hmm. some loosening of our fusion, some mm -hmm. um, maybe wonder or or curiosity or awe um, about the experience that can help um, loosen perhaps mm -hmm. like the the knob of uh, like emotional strain. Like as I was experiencing the other night, once I did this wondering and it seemed like, well, in fact, <laughs> anxiety and other emotions are made up of stuff I can't describe like it, it felt i felt better i felt a little bit better mm -hmm. and so i guess my question is is the fact that this investigation can lead to i think diminished suffering is that a side effect and is that goal like not primary or in how do you see it do you see them being like equally important or it's like a nice to have now that we have discovered this like fundamental metaphysics about the world well, it's a great question. I see them as is they're inextricably linked, um, and 
I, I, it's very natural for one, and I encounter people all the time in my work who are, kind of come to these explorations because there's some there's some struggle happening in their lives. There's something that they're looking for that feels like incomplete or maybe, and in some cases there's like just bona fide, like they're just suffering, struggling in, in different ways. And so they're looking for something and they could be seeking out any number of things, you know, in the world that are available, you know, from psychological approaches, more psychologically informed approaches to spiritual metaphysical meditative kinds of approaches to potentially, you know, the, the work that I'm doing. And so that, that may be impetus for some people, like I am suffering and I want to try to reduce my suffering or become more free of it in some way, gain insight into it. And, and that's all very natural. And, and in some ways, I, I share what I share a, as a response to human suffering without question. I see, I see people, I see my students, you know, many of whom are 20 somethings, my grad students, fresh out of undergrad. And as we know from a lot of data emerging, um, this particular generation is like the amount of psychological unrest is it's, it's kind of off the charts for reasons we don't fully understand. People are trying to understand this. Why is this happening? But I see it in my students. I mean, the vast majority of them are on medication <laughs> for anxiety and depression. And they're, they're, they're not really necessarily outliers when we, when we look at the data. So, so I feel that natural kind of like, wow, I, I, I feel compelled to want to share this with them because I really have, have the sense that it can be profoundly um, beneficial in terms of them helping them to navigate their difficult, uh, uh, the rough and tumble of life in a very, very different way. Uh, and so, yeah, so, so these things are, they're inextricable that, that the discovery that our experience transcends language and conceptualizing is just, well, I'll just say it again. It's liberating. We're, we're lib, we're essentially, we realize a perspective and, and I like to emphasize this, that, that I sometimes say we can think of two broad perspectives on life. One is the, what I call the, the seemingly describable world which is the world we mostly think we live in. And then the world of our actual experience, which turns out to be utterly indescribable and transcendental in that sense. And, and they're, they're both, they both have their veracity. They both have their, I can see the world and do see the world through all sorts of interpretive lenses and descriptive lenses and make sense of the world in that way. And, you know, like I was saying earlier, like I know, yeah, I'm in a room and I know I'm having a conversation and those are interpretive frameworks that I'm, I'm living inside of to some degree and experiencing th those perspectives. But then there's this other perspective, which is the perspective of the indescribable. And that perspective, the sense of that, the felt sense of that perspective, um, if you know, use your example of like the, a moment of experiencing anxiety, well, anxiety is a description. And then we also describe ourselves as the person, have all sorts of ideas about who we are and that we are in a sort of relationship with a subjective state like anxiety, right? And so discovering that both the experience itself transcends language and conceptualizing and the one having the experience, it's also in some sense defined into existence <laughs> through the ways we 
consciousness conceives of what the self is and who and what we are, that seeing that, that the self also transcends language and description, then, then what you have, have is a perspective on what's occurring without negating the conceptualized version, because we don't really lose that. Like, you know, you could still know that I'm a person having anxiety. You know that perspective. You don't lose that knowledge. But then you also open up this window into something entirely different, which is a feeling of like an open-ended, indescribable um, infinity, quite frankly, boundless infinity that doesn't collapse into any frame of reference or interpretation, can't be collapsed because of its boundless, infinite nature. And that has a completely different feel. There is no one stuck in anything whatsoever. There's just this free flow of, we well, can't really say what it's a free flow of. I could say energy or information, but those are more descriptors, right? Of something that's just, you cannot say what it is. And, you know, one of the, um, so, so yes, yeah, so I, I say that, that emphasizing this all the time, that the discovery of the, the inconceivable nature of this, uh, opens up like the, the implications of that feel very different because you know, many of the implications of the way we language the world, the way consciousness renders this conceptually, uh, have a tendency to dumb it down, to make it smaller than it is, to make it less than it is, to make it seem to be lacking in some way, uh, diminish it. Uh, I mean, essentially we're, we're, we're saying that I, I would suggest that what the conceptualizing apparatus or function of consciousness does is it takes infinity and makes it into something seemingly finite and arguably maybe more manageable in certain respects. Cause it's like, I take this infinite sea of data and turn it into something manageable. So it's not so chaotic and, and infinite. And now I have a, I have a sense I've got a handle on what's going on. Cause I've got these frames of reference. Um, but it's really, again, quite freeing to encounter this other perspective where there's no handles, there's no footholds, there's no, it's just, um, it's like a free fall. But, but there's not someone free falling through anything. There's just this lush, rich, um, boundless openness um, that's um, actually life-giving and vital and nourishing in its, in sort of its basis, I would say. Um, yeah. So I think certainly from my own experience and work with others that this kind of perspective, discovering the inconceivable nature of experience is, is, is a, is an incredible sort of medicine for the things that we find ourselves, um, struggling with in life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's good that someone and people like you are doing this kind of work because I think that when you go to a meditation retreat or you read a book on based on like the Buddhist teachings, they'll say things like, you know, everything is fleeting and everything is connected and there's no self and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But with without these efforts... I think it's pretty hard. Like I, it's kind of ironic because we're talking about the poverty of language, but these yeah. kinds of conversations help you understand, I think 
you know, short of actually witnessing it yourself or maybe <laughs> alongside, it helps move us in the direction of looking for those things that I guess those, you know, old masters are pointing to. Yeah, that's 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 the you know kind of irony or paradox of of my own work, which is is very language based. <laughs> I mean, I write books; they're filled with words, and and the books are filled with words talking about the limitations of words. It's just it's ironic, but um, it's certainly been my experience, and and I think others have who have encountered my work, have, some at least have found it to be the case that the words can be help point us to something that lies beyond the words and helps to highlight the limitations of words and and evoke this the, the kind of discovery of um, the ways in which experience deviates really 180 degrees from what we think is occurring let me give if I could like I think I mean you mentioned um, the fleeting nature of things, uh, you know, which is kind of a cornerstone of a lot of traditions, but certainly Buddhism, you know, that if you want to know one reason why I would say reality or experience can't be collapsed into any interpretive framework, despite what we believe, <laughs> right. Um, is, is the, the truth, if you will, of, of impermanence that if you just feel your experience you don't need to sit on a meditation cushion for 20 years to discover this just feel your experience right now and notice that the perception that's here is here really for no time whatsoever it's here and it's gone it's very occurrence is its disappearance i mean we've been talking for you know a little over half an hour where is that it doesn't exist anymore. It's gone. And that's a half, half an hour or whatever, 40 minutes. What about the last minute? Well, that's also gone too, isn't it? What about the last, you know, 10 seconds? That's gone. What about the last second? That's gone. What about the last, you know, micro nanosecond? Well, that, I mean, how, how long is this moment actually here for? It's really, it's, you, it's ungraspable, isn't it? It's just gone. It's gone in the, it's like, as my words are being spoken, they're vanishing. And there's this lovely image in the Tibetan tradition of like writing on water, you know, if like you, you take your finger and you start to write your name in the water and it's like, it's like the letter is taking shape as you write it in the water seemingly, but the shape is vanishing as you create it, isn't it? When you write on water and that's what experience is like that, that may sound abstract, but it's actually this is the funny thing. The notion that experience has persistence, has continuity, has, that actually endures over time, that's the abstraction. The actual experience completely contradicts that abstraction. And so in that sense, it's not abstract at all. It's palpable. The, the, the disappearance of the moment is what we're actually experiencing in each instant, is it's the vanishing of the instant and the inability to hold anything in place. So right there, I would say, I mean, I'm also a scientist. That's the empirical evidence that this can't be conceived. Because if I were to say to anyone listening to this, I, I want you to think about this moment and what it is, you can't do it. 
because the minute you conceive of the moment, what you've just conceived is no longer here. So how can you conceive of the moment? It's, it's literally impossible. And seeing that, which I think can be seen quite easily because it's staring us in the face experientially. What are the, what are the implications of that? Uh, when it comes to this belief we have uh, in our knowledge of what things are, if what's happening experientially is that dynamic, that alive, that it's just, you know, I say it's like a fire burning, you know, the fire, you know, say, what is the shape of the fire? That would be like the description of it. What is the shape of this moment? Like the fire, it it's, doesn't hold still, does it? So you can't describe the shape of the moment. So our language of what things are, like we say something like any state of mind, you know, that we seem to be able to describe, we could say, well, we're describing some pattern, right? That's recognizable. In fact, it's so recognizable that we go, oh, there is that state again that I've experienced before because it's familiar to us, isn't it? But that's that frame of reference, that the knowledge that we seem to hold about what things are, and then our ability to kind of render reality and put it into these descriptive categories rests upon memory. But what what's here now is, is never been here before. It's fresh, isn't it? And then in the next instant that something new appears, that's even in a subtle way, distinct from what was here a nanosecond ago. So this becomes very interesting um, and suggest quite strongly to me that indicates to me that this is not knowable. We, we can, when I say I know what this moment is and I can describe it, I'm, what I've described is, isn't here anymore. L literally. So there's an, there's a great freedom in that because we're not actually bound in something that we imagine to be continuous, that somehow whatever we feel we're overwhelmed by or the victims of in some sense, it's like every instant, like it's a, reset of reality the the past where is the past it's gone i think we've done a really good job or you have really <laughs> of articulating that conclusion but maybe help us and you're it seems like you're segueing into this but help us a little bit more with the implications and how the realization of this truth can lead to the lessening of suffering if, if you're interested in that because I think that will be a question that listeners and readers probably will have yeah well <laughs> uh, how can I how can I say it I mean because it's very much a the discovery of the implications ultimately has to be an experiential one Mm -hmm. where you can feel, um, you know, I say at the outset of the book, I, I, I actually, I actually talk a little bit about, you know, my teaching at Santa Clara university, one of the places I teach at. And, um, and I, and I, and I talk about how, you know, even our most evidence-based therapeutic approaches, at least based on you know, sort of clinical trial research suggests that, you know, they 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 help people but not actually a high percentage of people and and there's a range of 
how much they actually help. So, so maybe there's a message in that or, you know, something to be learned about, well, may, maybe we could approach this differently potentially. And, and I say in that chapter, that intro chapter, that maybe, maybe let, let's take a look at what we think is a problem some state like anxiety that we want to rid ourselves of and get beyond the the language again has this implication that there's something there that needs to be fixed there's something there that's overwhelming us there's something there that that is problematic in some sense but the more we feel into the reality of our experience the more we will see that there's not things <laughs> there's not things both in terms of what's being encountered uh, and then the one we imagine is encountering them namely us because we could say what are we that fundamental question uh we could understand ourselves as a a constellation of experiences and as experience we're changing every flash instant as well we have no endurance as a self, as an individual. And so we're, we're like every other phenomena, we're, we're, sha we're shape-shifting <laughs> uh, nanosecond by nanosecond. So, so both the thing we imagine ourselves stuck in or the victims of or overwhelmed by, that's not a thing because that's just this fluid, ever-changing, ever-morphing, not a thing at all because it, it's so continuously it's, it's not a thing because things to be a thing, you know, which of course we have nouns, which suggests there are things, but to be a thing, right? It, something has to have continuity. Otherwise, how can we describe it as something, as a thing, right? But if we feel the way, just by simply feeling what's here, the fluid nature of every instant, the ungraspable nature of it, ungraspable in the sense of you can't hold on to this moment. It slips away. Its nature is to vanish, then, wow, we can start to get a sense of, I'm not experiencing things. If anything, we could say it's just this fluidity. And, and then I am also not a thing that, that could be, that is the victim of anything. Again, this is just a perspective. From another perspective, yeah, I'm a person. If I walk outside, I get hit by the car, you know, and I get injured, that, that's all. That's the, that's the defined, the seemingly dis definable world and it has its own reality. Okay. So just to make clear, I'm not negating that, but then that entire description is also a rendering at each element of it from the person that I am to the event of walking outside to the thing I call a car, to the thing I call an injury, all of that is in its fundament, more fundamental basis, just an indescribability. And then from that vantage, it's like. Well, that's just an entirely different way that reality is, in a sense, experience. That's so. The implication of that is just um, it's 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 discovering what you could call the the problem free nature of of everything. There's no problems. The problems are defined into existence. There's not things to be problems. There's just a boundless, ungraspable aliveness that, that, that appears to have split itself. This is the notion of kind of non-duality. This, this wholeness of life, we call, we 
call it that, the wholeness of reality, appears to split itself and can be experienced and is experienced as a differentiated, you know, a set of differentiated phenomena, right? We, we make these distinctions from one thing to another. But, but there's another way to experience it. And that is that, that, that this is a, a seamless whole. It's, a, it's a, experientially speaking, we, we don't, like if you and I were sitting in a room together, the, the ordinary perspective would be we're each an autonomous individual with our own life streams and, and we're now encountering, you know, one another. I, I'm an object of your perception. You're an object of my perception. We're, we're separate, right? I and mean, that's the ordinary consensus reality. If we actually, now all of that rendering of you and I having a conversation together in person, if we were doing that, that entire rendering of that, interpreting of that would be, um, is based on an experience that's happening. And then we, we, we abstract that, we, we overlay this idea of there's two people here. But what's interesting is that the experience, like right now, and we know we're not, we're just speaking online, we're not together in person. If we feel the experience that's occurring right now, this is very interesting. We don't find any subjects or objects. We find a field, you could say an open-ended continuum of experiencing. We don't find any walls. We don't find any borders. We don't find any boundaries, any edges. We just find complete openness with no subjects or objects. And so from that vantage, which we can feel, I think, you know, if there's an openness to, to, to discovering that, we can feel that way in which experience is undivided. Well, now there's not a person that things are happening to, potentially threatening, damaging things. There's, there's no, uh, there's just wholeness. There's just life and there's no, there's no one to be threatened there by anything. There's nothing in that sense. There's nothing at the center of experience other than more experience, <laughs> experience at the center of experience. And, and that has a very, very different feel. You know, you might from, from the other perspective, like I say, I'm overwhelmed by some event that's occurring or some loss that's happened. And I can feel that and I can experience all of that. Um, and then I also potentially have access to this other perspective that it's all the movement of some inconceivable life force. Uh, just like the ocean, there's not me, the wave experiencing some giant wave that's about to overwhelm me. It's just a vast, boundless, seamless ocean of existence. And all I can say is that the, the feeling tone of that, the implications of that are just entirely different. There's no threats and no one being threatened. So it's completely at peace you know there's no conflict there's no nothing bumping into anything else nothing crashing into anything else nothing in conflict with anything else there's just wholeness well that, that feels quite a bit different doesn't it yeah mm -hmm. yeah well thank you for that um let me ask is there a risk 
and and this will also just be a concept so probably easily dismissible but (laughs) taking taking this truth seriously is there a risk to the believer of these truths to become nihilistic well um i mean i think how one might end up interpreting that perspective, you know, of the undivided, as I was just sort of pointing to, um, you know, you could say from that perspective, there's no world, there's no people in the world. Sure, one could then take that and turn that into some sort of nihilistic philosophy or ideology. But that, that of course, is, is just that. It's a philosophy and ideology. The lived experience of that doesn't feel, it, it feels quite the opposite of nihilism. Um, uh, one of the things that, I, that, 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 you know, has continues to be revealed to me through these sort of explorations is that everything in a sense is significant. Everything is intrinsically significant and meaningful in that, you know, if you think about like a hologram and you say, well, a hologram, uh, you know, everything is made of this holographic, I don't know what the hologram is, kind of like light or something. I don't know how it works exactly, like some computer-generated reality. But in, in if you think about this holographically and you say, well, it's all made of some substanceless substance, you know, reality, whatever it's made of, it's all made of that. And so from that standpoint, there's no hierarchy of meaning or significance. It's all of equal. And it just turns out, the good news from my standpoint is, is that the, there always seems to be a kind of implication of, of whatever's encountered. And the implication, as I experience it, of this seamless whole, this undivided whole, is of, of a kind of perfection, of a kind of beauty, of a kind of awe-inspiring depth and intelligence uh, and meaningfulness. And those are, again, labels that I'm putting on top of something that I keep saying is beyond labels. But but there's the sense of that somehow that, and I've been finding this more and more that so many of the things that consciousness in its interpreting creates this kind of hierarchy of value and significance and meaning. And so a lot of what's happening experientially, like if you say, for example, in the visual field, that that we're just sort of discounting a lot of it as, oh, well, that's just, you know, like I'm looking across the room in, in the kitchen where the lights are off, but there's some shadows being cast on the wall. Well, well, who cares about that, right? I mean, it's, it's insignificant, isn't it? But is it insignificant or is that an interpretation? Because if I actually just look at it on its own terms, without that, that any kind of conceptual idea that somehow that's like noise in the system or it doesn't really have much meaning, it's like suddenly, it's like, uh, as I look at it now, I can kind of feel this. It's like, that, that, that thing's a lot, that's alive. That shadow is life. That shadow literally is life. E- e- no more, no less than any other life form. It's, it's here. It's life in the sense of it's present, right? It's here. It's appearing as part of the field of experience. And, and so, to me, this is why I say it's the opposite of nihilism. It's like everything comes so alive if if we look in that way at things. In a sense, if we if we let things tell us what they are, rather than us overlaying 
oh, this is significant or meaningful and this is not, or this is good or this is not, but we just let things reveal their own nature to us, we can begin to see that everything we're looking at, we're looking at the nature of reality, aren't we? <laughs> we're looking at the, from a physicalistic standpoint, we're looking at the laws of physics. No, right? I mean, everything is equal in that sense. And um, so, yeah, in that sense, everything matters. Everything is, is, the, is the shining forth of, of some miraculous, uh, well, we can't really say. I mean, I mean, truly, everything is miraculous. The moment's appearance is miraculous. How is the moment here? How is anything here? <laughs> we have no explanation for that, nor, nor could we ever have an explanation for it. How could we explain the, the presence of life? Um, so yes, I mean, to me, it's, it's, it's the discovery of, and I use the word infinity a couple of times in our conversation and that, that's like real abstract sort of word, maybe it doesn't feel very accessible. The way I describe infinity is, is it's the discovery that, that our experience is endless. If you investigate your experience and whatever you or I might think is happening in our experience, if we just explore it we could have from now until the end of time to explore it. We'd never get to the end of it where we finally come to like, Oh, this is what it is. No, no, it's endless. It's like, you just look and look and you just find more and you look at that more and you find more and you find more and you it's endless and endlessly rich experience is rich, isn't it? It's, it's sensual. It's, it's, um, it's alive. It's vital. And, yeah, that's so that's you talk about another kind of it's not just a side effect, it's just a discovery that wow, this is boundlessly rich. It's like a treasure of richness. Every every instant is is not only is it fleeting and ever changing, but we could say it's also infinite in its endless um the endless amount of stuff that seems to be there um, in each, in each moment. And, um, yeah, so it's, you know, there's a, there's a growing interest as, as, as you're probably aware of in use of psychedelics and in the context of therapy. And this is a very interesting area of study. Um, I, I I'm interested in it, not because I am any proponent, uh, of use of psychedelics. I don't use them myself. I haven't for, for many decades, uh, nor do I necessarily suggest that other people use psychedelics. However, I think that this research that's coming out may be pointing to some very important things that I think touch upon the work that I'm sharing with you, my own, my own work. And, and if we look at some of the research in it, it seems like there's two themes that keep emerging about some of the experiences that people are having under the influence of different psychedelics, again, in the context of psychotherapy. And these two things are self-transcendent experiences and experiences of awe and wonder. And I've very much been talking about this, you know, in our conversation. Uh, and I, I believe that by investigating our experience, we can, we can, that that investigation can reveal many of the things that seem to, to sometimes get revealed when people are using psychedelics in terms of something that maybe we've been overlooking about experience. You know, it's like the almost become a bit of a joke. You know, the person that's 
taken some LSD and let's say, and they're just staring at a wall, you know, for a half an hour. I was like, why are they staring at the wall? I mean, well, it's because they're on drugs, right? <laughs> but hmm, maybe they're staring at the wall because there's something quite remarkable about the wall that we would otherwise um, be overlooking because, which, well, it's just a wall, right? But maybe, maybe the wall is miraculous. Well, it is miraculous in the sense of, again, of its existence. And maybe the color of the wall is something to a beauty to behold that, that has just endless depth to it and nuance to it and multidimensionality to it. And the texture of the wall, the same thing, the touch of the wall and the, um, just the sheer existence and presence of the wall. You see what I mean? It's like, it's, it's like, uh, and we don't really understand how some of these substances might be eliciting such experiences. There's some different theories about how it's impacting the brain and the default mode network of the brain and maybe quieting some of those interpretive frameworks that are often driving so much of our sense of things. Um, but I think that's an interesting area. Again, I think more in terms of the experiences that they seem to be evoking. When you start to open up to the absolute wonder of everything, uh, it, it becomes a little bit more difficult to be merely seeing the world through, say, more of a sort of a depressed frame of reference or an anxious frame of reference when you realize, well, that's not the whole story, is it? <laughs> There's more going on than my particular frame of reference. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for that. The conversation reminded me of so many things. I noticed myself developing quite a strong attachment to a really groovy shadow that was uh, being cast here. On the <laughs> yeah, it's 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 remarkable. I mean, it's just uh, um, I would joke with my grad students sometimes when I get talking about the awe. In fact, I'm teaching a class tonight on awe and wonder at one of my programs when I teach and. Um, I'll probably end up saying halfway through the lecture, like, and now you understand why Dr. Asin doesn't take drugs. <laughs> mm -hmm. Because uh, reality itself is the mind-altering substance. It's, 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 it's just astonishing. You know? it's, it's truly astonishing, all that's happening. Um, but again, our interpretive frameworks can sometimes lead us to believe that, well, you know, like, we might be sitting around saying, oh, same old, same old, this is another boring mundane day in my life. It's like, really? Uh, maybe, maybe, it's, maybe it can be worthwhile to look at what's actually present that the mind might be saying is somehow less than or lacking or not much excitement. And when there's this explosion of life happening in every instant. Yeah. Yeah. It reminds me of my last guest um, is like a, at least big personal proponent for himself of the use of psychedelics. And uh -huh. he, he experienced a loss of his child and that sort of prompted this investigation. Mm -hmm. And something that he found for himself was not that like the grief he has has gone away, but the mm -hmm. space in which he lives is now bigger. So mm -hmm. like kind of how you were saying, it's not the whole story, right? right? He's also noticing more. He's noticing, you know, happiness and making room for it alongside, you know, things yeah. that are harder. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Something else that our conversation reminds me of is I've had a guest on before, Dr. Judson Brewer, and he's mm -hmm. a I know mindfulness. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So it, it, it's it's almost like for him the investigation, the curiosity, the it's the instrumental 
part of that that brings the relief whereas it's like the asking of the question what is going on here whereas you're taking it a step for, further and actually answering the question and admittedly the answer isn't firm i mean it is firm in some way it's that yeah. it's undescribable but like from his perspective the relief comes from just looking right like where yeah. is this feeling in my body etc cetera, etc cetera. but you're both asking the question more deeply like well you know, really, what is it made of and sort of answering it. So mm -hmm. it's it's interesting to think about like where and, and I'm sorry to be so my hobby horse is like finding the impact, you know. Oh, yeah. Really no, I'm a pragmatist. I like that you're asking that question. I, I don't I'm not a philosopher. I really am not. I is yeah, it, I'm, I'm not that interested in philosophy. <laughs> yeah. So I, I was wondering and now I think I've answered my own question, but it could be the case and it won't ever be, but it could be the case that our language is like maximally, has an, a maximal ability to describe things, like to some nth degree, such that some version of a human being or alien really could describe stuff with words, um, you know, to infinity. And obviously this is a thought experiment and that'll never be the case. But I, I wonder if you get the benefit even without answering the question. Like, Maybe, okay, so let's take this alien, for example, whose ability to describe his or her experience doesn't, you know, approaches infinity. Does that mean that for them, there's less like impact or purchase on the answer they find? Because the answer they're going to find is like, well, actually, <laughs> I do a pretty good job of, of um, understanding things and describing things, but I'm still getting some benefit out of this investigation practice because I'm realizing that there's like, there is really um, an infinity I cannot approach. Um, yeah, so maybe for the alien, it's just like, it's the same thing, just a different degree, not different kind. I don't know what you think. Of well, it, it's of interesting, mind. you know, um, I mean, a couple things come to mind. One is that we, we, we do have a clue from physics uh, right now. And I had a conversation recently with a, with a quantum physicist about this, that um, and, and he was pretty clear that we, we can never get to the bottom of this. And, and he, he, his argument was, at least you know, right now, that, the, that our explanation of the material world is mathematical, right? That's, that's, that's where we've come to because we, we can't actually observe matters. It's, it's, it's that you know, small. And, and so we understand it mathematically. But the math upon which we understand the world is itself based on unresolvable infinities. So what, what's curious about all of this and kind of remarkable is that, and maybe it's one reason why many people are not necessarily drawn to the kind of inquiry that I, I teach, because, you know, you don't necessarily have to, you know, if you take the number pi, you know, you can, and he, he was telling me, the physicist that I talked to about this, that we only need to go a couple of decimal points out to actually be able to use pi, you know, 3.14 is like, you know, kind of good enough to predict things and build things and, right. But of course it doesn't end at 3.14, it goes 3.1415, I don't know, pi after that, but it, it has no end. So it won't be resolved ever what it is. And I mean, that just makes, it makes experiential sense to me. It makes intuitive sense. I mean, infinite 
means infinite. It has no resolution because it has no end. It's always more. It's always more. But we do have a desire, <laughs> it would seem, as humans, to, to be able to conclude what things are. Like, we want that. We, we have a strong, I don't know, need, but, uh, you know, the uncertainty can make us uncomfortable. The not knowing seems to not be, at least at first glance, to be that attractive. Like, Kana, I want to know what this is. But what if we can't? And it would seem that we can't. What's that like? What's it like to not be able to, you know, when I, I say when you feel the moment, you, 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 there's no conclusion to what this is. What's that like for it to be inconclusive? To me, it's very open-ended. It's very free. It's, it's, there's something in that that's a kind of freedom. But I can appreciate how it might be a bit unnerving, you know, that we, we can't seemingly come to a conclusion about this. The, the other thing I would say is that, as I was speaking to earlier, that the notion that we could somehow develop a, a language that was, you know, nuanced enough that it really could come even that much closer to approaching infinity, maybe even somehow capturing infinity, uh, you know, we, some AI that could somehow do that or something. Well, if what's here is gone in the instant of its appearance, well, there is no capturing. There is not actually something here to capture. And this is the basic concept of emptiness in Buddhism. What makes the moment empty is that it can't be identified. It has no identity. They say in one of the sutras that all dharmas are empty of self-nature. And this is this idea that you can't identify what's here because it it's not here for any time. So the whole project even of attempting to know is a fool's errand. I mean, it can be an enjoyable one and we, we seem to be curious creatures, so there's nothing wrong with it. It's like, it's like the universe, you know, in the human form is in exploring itself, studying itself, coming to know itself, investigating itself. But it always will remain a mystery unto itself, owing to its infinite nature, because it, it has no final, like, I finally came to the final conclusion of, you know, um, I don't know, there's something to me so glorious about that. I mean, think about other human beings, like, you know, the, your, your, your friends, your, your lovers, your kids, your parents, you know, are you ever going to come to the final conclusion of what makes them them? No, they're infinite. You know, now I know who you are. I know everything I could possibly ever know about who you are and what makes you, you. It's mysterious, isn't it? It's you're, you're, you're each one of us is fathomless ultimately. And uh, how beautiful that is that, uh, you know, we're that, we're that infinite and multidimensional. So it sounds like you're saying we can't capture someone's total beingness in their Tinder profile. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'll also note that today is Pi Day, the day that we're recording. Oh, is it really? That's so cool. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> it's become one of my favorite metaphors for uh, the nature of reality. It's like Pi, you know, it's sort of like the words and concepts are amazing, like maps, you know, that, that, that can 
you know, we could kind of get around reality pretty well with these maps and we have some sense of where we are and who we are and what we're doing and what's going on here. And then simultaneously, we, we will never actually know who we are and what's going on here. And how wondrous is that, that this is both knowable and unknowable simultaneously. Well, that's a paradox, isn't it? But it's very yeah. much like that, isn't it? I mean, take, take, I say, take the flavor of any food. You know, you know exactly the flavor and you can recognize it and distinguish it from other flavors. But if you had to, to get to the bottom of what makes any flavor that flavor, what makes, what makes, what is the essence of saltiness or sweetness or chocolate or vanilla, you can see very quickly that it has no final essence that makes that that. Um, because you can't, you just can't say it's, it's, it's pure mystery, isn't it? And yet at the same time, you know exactly what it is. It's that it's, it's, it's very specifically what it is. This is a great paradox. Things are very specifically what they are. And yet you can't specify what they are. You can't say what that specificity really is. It's really, it's, it's amazing. It's, it's right. But we think we know that they are specific that's right we can't tell we can't tell people about it but we somehow know yeah yeah and and you know from again to come back to the pragmatic piece it's like well i i, I say you know you, you don't need to explore any deeper than what language is suggesting in terms of i know what things are and that's good enough you know and i, I don't have to look any deeper fine you know but i would say suggest that exploring what's actually there which can't be found interestingly it's there it's like mirage like it's there but you can't it's like a, a rainbow you it's there but you can't find the rainbow that's just like phenomena they're there but you can't find them well that doesn't make any sense but it's what you're really experiencing discovering that you can't find them has two pragmatic you know impacts one is more enjoyment and the other is less suffering. Because you find the, the richness of the, the fathomless richness of everything, that's the kind of more enjoyment element, you could say. And the less suffering is that, well, there's, there's not actually things there. There's just open-endedness. Mm -hmm. Well, um, yeah, I don't, I think that's a good, that's a, probably a good place to stop. Um, I, uh, yeah, I don't want to take up too much of your time today, but this has been a really, a really enlightening conversation. Um, I think being, and I have a lot of other questions to ask, but, you know, perhaps another time being on this sort of spiritual path, feels like it requires both the investigation and I think the conversation. I mean, it, it maybe maybe if you just go off into the woods without ever talking to someone about this stuff or your friends who are also investigating, mm -hmm. you can find a lot of these things for yourself. And maybe that's what like the Buddha needed to do mm -hmm. is like the the first the first knower of these things, perhaps. But it really does feel useful and helpful mm -hmm. to not just sit, but also to learn and read and talk. I, I think the two together are are pretty supportive. I, I agree, and I I think. It, again, this is kind of the paradox of, of teachers and teachings in a sense, which is that, you know, and I hope that I can do this in my own role in that regard, that, that I'm, I'm helping people hopefully to 
consider and point out the ways in which interpretive frameworks are suggesting one thing that may not be the whole story to what's going on. So I, 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 that's my use of words. That's the conversations that I have with people. Like, let's like notice what's here and notice how it deviates from our, some of our consensus reality interpretations. I mean, there are many time, space, cause effect. These are, these are consensus realities that we just don't question it for the most part, but our experience can be by exploring experience, we can discover how it deviates from those consensus reality frameworks, frames of reference. And so, yeah, so the words and the conversations can hopefully direct people to look at their experience in ways that will reveal sort of the, the more transcendental nature of it. Um, but ultimately, I say this again and again with people who are exploring stuff with me, that, that the ultimate authority is their experience itself, not anything I say. You know, you have to you have to to make any sense of any of the things you and I have been discussing. I, I believe is if you're only relating to them at the level of the ideas, well, that can be a starting point. But but you know, honestly, everything that I was sharing was with with you in our conversation was an invitation to direct people back to their experience to see if there's any validity to anything that I'm talking about. But let the experience be the the ultimate determinant of that, not any sort of authoritative voice, mine or anyone else's. Yeah, it's, it's experience is the great teacher. But maybe left to their own devices, um, the power of the interpretive frameworks, you know, the, the sort of indoctrination <laughs> that's gone on, just it's all innocent. But, you know, we've come to imagine the potency of language and conceptualizing is such that one left to their own devices could end up sort of without even realizing it, just continue to reinforce the status quo of those conceptual frameworks. If someone's not sort of helping to sort of dissect some of those and deconstruct some of those. Um, but ultimately experience itself is the great deconstructor because yeah, just feel your experience and notice how, wow, there's not an enduring aspect to it. And uh, that one discovery is, a, is really a game changer to see that yeah yeah it's interesting to think about you know they say that if you have a room full of monkeys on typewriters eventually they'll write shakespeare but is it the case that just a mind just a person who's dead set on just meditating you know sitting under the bodhi tree or whatever it was mm -hmm. for until they become enlightened I, a lot of that time would probably be spent as you said reinforcing a lot of these schemes and concepts well, I mean, I, speaking from my own experience, I mean, yes, I was studying with different teachers and exposing myself to various teachings, but I meditated for a long, long time. And I didn't fully appreciate until, you know, about 20 years ago that that I'd been subtly or not so subtly trying to have a particular kind of experience. And so, yeah, I was sitting, but I didn't exactly realize that I was kind of rejecting what was already present because I was imagining from everything that I've read and heard about that there was something better. There was a better state to be having, a more awakened state to have. And as it turns out, that the very moment that was appearing was exactly what I was looking for. Nothing needed to change about anything. And that, that you know, that was catalyzed by something that someone said on the retreat, you know, the teacher at the time, just that kind of played a role in facilitating like my sort of stopping uh, and relaxing that 
effort to to have some different perception than the one that I was presently having, which of course, funny enough, is impossible to have a different perception than the one you're having. But, uh, but I was trying. Uh, and so, yeah, so yeah, the guidance of someone helping to point some of those things out can be invaluable without question. So, so I'm curious, mm -hmm. um, given all that we, all that you've discovered and have let us know about in this mm -hmm. brief conversation, Practically speaking, for meditators out there, and perhaps in light of you know this conversation, thinking about MBSR, mindfulness-based stress mm -hmm. reduction, and the kinds of sitting practices encouraged there, like you know forty-five-minute body scans, et cetera, mm -hmm. et cetera. What 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 would you say is your prescription for? Let's say you already have a daily practice of sitting. I I can't tell anymore if duration of practice is important or, or what, but what is, what do you think you would recommend to someone who's trying to make room in their life for these kinds of, you know, practices and insights, how to approach it? Well, it's funny. Someone I just did a couple of sessions with asked me sort of the, considering he was enjoying the conversation so much, asked me this sort of kind of curious question, which is, you know, do you have any books or other resources you could recommend? And I was kind of like, well, at the risk of sounding very self-serving, <laughs> I mean, in a way, of course, I'm going to recommend what I've been creating because I'm, I, I, I share it because it's my own conclusion about that this is the most beneficial approach. It may not be for, for anyone or, or certain people, certainly, but it's sort of my best take at like how to come to discover the things that we've been talking about. And, um, and so if you look at my approach and what I write about and the meditate, I mean, for example, in the Sarah, Sam Harris app, I mean, I've whatever there's 30 or 40 meditations on there. Well, there's some people even on the app itself who say, well, these aren't really meditations, you know, and they're not in the sense of like, they're not emphasizing silence and stillness and quietude and that's not what what they are. They're using words to direct people back to explore their experience. So I, if if somebody's drawn to sitting in silence and meditating in the various forms that can take um, as part of their own discovery process, and they find that to be of benefit, well, I'm never going to quibble with that and suggest that they should do something different. But it's not something I suggest. It's not something that I do in my own life. Um, if anything, I'm kind of a short moments of awareness kind of person in, in terms of, um, you know, if you're inclined to take short moments to explore your experience in, in some of the ways we've been talking about, uh, allowing it to just be as it is and, and noticing its nature um, outside of the typical ways that you believe it to be and conceive of it to be. And, you know, of course, I have much more specific methods, if you will, for directing people to explore their experience. Um, I, I think the short moments approach is there's different reasons why it's, you know, emphasized say like in, like in the Tibetan tradition, um, which I'm no expert on, but, but I know in that tradition, it's one place where, where there, there is a highlighting of that approach. Um, one of the reasons I like it is that you could say one purpose of meditation is discover to discover that it's not necessary. 
In other words, the moment is already the brilliance of, of reality shining forth in all its splendor and wonder, whether you're meditating or not. So the meditation doesn't cause anything to happen. The meditation is more of a, you could say, I, I say one way to think about any form of meditation or inquiry is to see it fundamentally not as a means towards some end, but rather as an expression of that end. In other words, the, there is this singular reality that is appearing as all phenomena in every instant, including what we might call sitting on a cushion or doing a body scan. And in that sense, meditating and not meditating are the same reality. Yeah. And if, yeah, if, I hear if meditation can help one to discover that that is the case, um, fantastic. But I think certainly in my life, and I have observed this to be the case for others, not, not universal, of course, but it, it practices that the, 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 the potential downside of, of approaching practice in some ways is, is that it can subtly reinforce the idea that, um, that somehow, like for example, presence, I talk about presence and I talk about it in a different way than, than, and this might be a nice you know, kind of note to end on, um, that we think of presence often like being more present, you know, being in the present moment. And that's a fine approach to it. But there's another way to understand, uh, maybe you could say a different kind of presence, which is the presence of what is. And the presence of what is is not something that can be practiced. The presence of what is is the present of presence of what is, and it's inescapable, and it's the only thing that exists. And everything is the presence of what is. So, in that sense, everything is meditation, not as something that we're doing, but as an expression of life. So, the rain outside is meditation, and the sound of my voice is meditation, and the rumbling in your stomach is meditation. Again as an expression of the meditation of life itself, the, 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 the radiance of life. And that is always present. And it always looks different. It, it, it looks different in every instant. It can feel like terror. It can feel like joy. It can feel like clarity. It can feel like confusion. But all of it is, is the, the, the expression of, you know, all of this is, is the, are the wave-like phenomena that the ocean of life is expressing. In that sense, everything is equal in its aliveness, equal in its radiance, equal in its presence. And if practices can help us to discover that everything is this singular reality, then I highly recommend those practices. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, I think those maybe more mainstream or ordinary practices that can help people see, you know, pretty dysfunctional habits of mind and patterns and way they treat themselves and others, you know, uh, might be some important, I, I dare say, prerequisites for, you know, further exploration. But, you know, that's just been my path. Yeah. Um, so... I don't think there's any rules one way or the other. I think, you know, um, if one finds other kinds of practices to be like a more of a starting point, um, I don't know. I, I've certainly 
seen some evidence working with my graduate students in particular, who many of whom are pretty naive to all this stuff that, that they're pretty open to diving into the deep end without any preparatory mm -hmm. work. So I don't know. It's a kind of an open question to me if there's any requirements <laughs> for uh, exploring your experience. <laughs> well, when you put it that way. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, yeah, John, this has been a pleasure. It's been really, really interesting. Um, so besides this book, this extraordinary moment, I know you have a few more and also a website. Where can people find you? You can find all the stuff that I've put out into the world with respect to all this at my website, which is I'm really simple. It's just my name, johnaston.com. And I've got a lot of hundreds of videos and other podcast interviews that are up there. Just you can partake of if you'd like and other guided meditations and uh, links to books and writings and stuff. So yeah, there's a lot of material there. Beautiful. Well, thanks again, John. This has been great. Thanks so much, Josh. I'm so, so happy to talk with you.